This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the podcast that challenges you to think outside the toolbox. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Trevor and I hope you're enjoying our twice-monthly visits. I know I'm learning all sorts of new things and meeting new people since I came on board. For example, until this show, I had no idea dirt and grime could be transformed into gold. On today's show, we have all the dirt on weathering. You may be surprised to learn that there's serious money in weathered model railroad equipment. On the back half of the show, Trevor will be chatting with Jeremy St. Peter about this mysterious alchemy. But first, we want you to point yourself in the direction of Sacramento this summer and the NMRA's annual convention. This year, it's called Extra 2011 West, and there's a special aspect to the convention that will appeal to a select minority of modelers, those who model in that netherworld between HO and O. Here's Jim with our first guest. A few shows back, Trevor and his guest Jack Burgess talked about this year's must-attend model railroad event, Extra 2011 West in Sacramento, California. This is the NMRA National Convention to be held from July 3rd to 9th. Well, there's another component to this event that we want to talk about now. The National Association of S-Gagers, or NASG, is holding its annual convention jointly with Extra 2011 West. S is a scale with relatively few followers, so coupling on to an event of this magnitude is a big deal for its adherents. Ed Loazzo of Los Altos, California, is a big name in S-Scale, and his beautifully constructed New York Central Valley Division was featured in the 2005 edition of Great Model Railroads. You can also find a photo of his layout under the registration section of the NASG website. Ed is one very busy guy these days. He's helping to coordinate the National Association of S-Gagers Convention, but he's found a little time to be with us now to tell us all about it. Ed, welcome to the show, and I must say congratulations on producing such a stunning-looking S-scale layout. As just mentioned, S is still very much a minority scale, so tell us about the synergies of linking your annual convention to the NMRA's annual convention. Well, Jim, the the, uh, linking of the two conventions benefits everybody. It helps the S-scalers to see what's going on in other scales, particularly in the electronics areas with the DCC and wireless products. Uh, It helps them to understand what the prototypes are doing, because there's a ton of prototype tours and clinics and information, and it's a, just a phenomenal educational opportunity for S-scalers to look at things outside of the S-scale world. Uh, likewise, it gives all of the folks in uh, the HO world or the N-scale world a chance to look at what S-scale has. It's uh, uh, a lot there that most people are not aware of, since it's not in your local hobby store for the most part. It's uh, good to show off our our best uh, at these conventions so other people can see us. The synergies also go down to the manpower needs uh, that, that are necessary to put on a good convention. Uh, as you know, there's not uh, as many escalers in the world as there are folks in other scales, and so by sharing the workload to put on a convention, we get uh, a much bigger, more more comprehensive convention than we could ever do on our own. And so we can contribute our share to the overall uh, effort, but there's so much more to be done to, the uh, registration process, the hotel contracts, the security arrangements, the facility arrangements, uh, all of that is uh, just a time-consuming effort that can be handled by the HO guys or the N-scale guys, and and we S-scale folks uh, benefit from it uh, 
in, in a great way. And, and so it's a good deal for everybody. Well, we talk about synergy, but there's serendipity, too. Whose idea was it to link these two events? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a historical question of interesting uh, magnitude here. The first seed for this idea was in the late 1980s. It actually happened when the president of the NMRA and the president of NASG happened to uh, have a chance encounter at a uh, model railroad event, and they got to talking about it, and the idea was presented to the uh, NMRA president, and uh, he was very receptive to it. Uh, it kind of surprised me at the time. I thought he would uh, not be receptive to it, but uh, he was. And so we talked about it at some length, and the uh, joint convention in Pittsburgh uh, a year or two later was the first joint convention that we had. Since Pittsburgh, uh, there have been at least three or four other uh, joint conventions with the NASG. There was one here in San Jose, California in 2000, uh, and there have been others uh, in different ways, uh, either jointly simultaneously or jointly in the sense of one is right adjacent to the other facility across the street, so to speak, or time-wise it's adjacent. It's maybe the weekend before or the weekend after the NMRA convention. So in total, there's probably been about six or so, six, maybe even seven joint or semi-joint conventions with the NMRA in the last uh, 25 years or so. So the original idea came about when uh, I met with the NMRA president, uh, purely a a chance encounter, and proposed the idea, thinking it would be rejected out of hand, and and much to my surprise, it was not. As far as this uh, specific convention here in Sacramento goes, uh, the NASG has a convention coordinator uh, position, which at the time, which was about two years ago, was filled by Lee Johnson. And Lee approached me and said, uh, asked me if I'd be willing to coordinate the convention there in Sacramento. And I said yes. Lee and I have known each other for ever since day one, pretty much. And uh, we've done conventions jointly and separately and so forth over the years. So it was a good fit. We both live in the area, and we help each other out a lot. Yeah, you have a reputation so, for saying yes, don't you, Ed? Well, I don't know about my reputation. <laughs> my reputation <laughs> is probably more for being a little bit outspoken. But if it's something that's helpful to Escale, I'm generally uh, much in favor of it. Uh, I, I think Escale is the most underpromoted scale there is. I think there's a tremendous story to be told, and I don't think the story is being told as well as it could be. So when these opportunities come along, uh, I like to get involved in it and try to put on a good show for everybody. Okay, well, with these linked conventions, do you see a spike in interest, either inside of outside of S, you know, with the, the <laughs> cross-flow of uh, information? Well, that's an interesting question. It's hard for me, as an individual, to measure interest in S. These people come to these conventions from all over the world, literally. They're here from Europe, they're here from Japan, they're here from Australia, and all over America and Canada to boot, not to mention South America as well. And so they all come around and they look and they say how nice everything looks and uh, then they go back home. And I have no way of really measuring what they do after they go back home. I can't say that I've seen a genuine spike in NASG membership. I can't say I've seen a spike in any S-scale magazine subscriptions as a result of these joint conventions. But I do know that the NASG membership, as in many times they've answered surveys that indicate a desire and a preference to have these joint conventions every four or five years or so. They don't want them every year, which is understandable. We like our ESCO fraternity, our community, our own family. But uh, every once in a while, we like to step outside that and uh, do a little something different. So about every five or six years seems to be uh, a good time frame for doing these. 
but I can't say that our membership takes a spike or that there's all of a sudden there's more boxcars being sold than before the convention. I can't measure it that precisely. I've heard a phrase I think that probably pretty well defines the problem. People like to say what an ideal size S scale is, if only I didn't have so much HO. Have you heard that before, Ed? I've heard it hundreds <laughs> of times. Uh, sometimes it's with HO, sometimes it's with O scale, sometimes it's with N scale. What they're really saying is, if I had to start all over again, if I had a fire in my house, I would seriously consider S scale, but because of the situation with my investment in time and money, I can't really um, consciously make a change like that. You're not advocating that any S scalers go by Jerry Cans full of gasoline, though, are you? No, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Not at all. Well, can you tell us specifically, Ed, about the NASG convention? What uh, standalone events will you be presenting in Sacramento that would normally be part of an NASG convention? Every single event that NASG would normally have in a standalone convention where it's not joint with anybody, that every one of those events will also be held at the Sacramento convention. This is the first time that this has ever happened. Interestingly enough, it hopefully will not be the last time, but for instance, we are having our own separate S-scale banquet, an NASG banquet, on Saturday evening in the Primo location in all of Sacramento metropolitan region. We are having it in the roundhouse of the California State Railroad Museum. So we're having our own banquet. The, N- the NMRA is having uh, an event that same night in a different venue, the, the convention center, which is, you know, 10 blocks down the road. We're having our own swap meet. We can sell our own auction tables for a reasonable $25 a table. We're having our own auction, which is separate from the NMRA auction. We don't really want to sit around and listen to hours and hours of HO and N-scale products being auctioned off, so we can have our own auction. So you go to the contest. We're having our own contest. It's in a separate room. It's on our own time frame. It's our judging on our own rules and so forth. We have our own convention car. We have actually two S-scale convention cars this year. And the HO fellows are having an HO convention car, and the N-scale guys are having an N-scale convention car. So we're, we're doing everything that we would normally do for an S-scale convention. Home layout tours, we're having uh, you know, a couple of tours that are only S-scale only tours. We've got other tours that are drive yourself. You don't have to pay for the bus ride. You just get the map, get your car, and off you go. And have fun on your own with, with your own friends or your own family or however you want to do it. Well, Ed, we'll mention that your layout is among the uh, layouts to be seen, S-scale layouts. And I'd okay. urge anybody to drop in and say hello to you because it's a, it's a knockout layout. Anyway, Ed, as, as this is being loaded into our website, the big convention is a couple of months off. So how does one go about registering? This convention is a little bit unconventional. That's our theme, the unconventional convention. Uh, It's going to have to be done on the internet. You um, basically can call up the website for the convention. There's a registration page and you will find an order form and you can uh, register. You can buy your convention car. You can buy your banquet ticket. You can buy your auction table. You can do everything is on the internet. There's a shopping cart there. You can see if something is already sold out. It will tell you that so you don't have to uh, order something and think you've got it and then find out later you don't have it. That, in theory, Anyway, that should not happen at all. You can see it immediately and uh, use your credit card and pay for it, and you're all set. You're guaranteed to go. Your hotel rooms uh, can be ordered on the website and everything. Bob's your uncle. Uh, you don't have to mention the website, uh, Ed. Uh, we have it on our website, so people can okay. just follow the link to you. Well, Ed, thanks for being with us. S can be a very rewarding scale for builders and bashers, so uh, here's hoping the twin NMRA and ASG convention this year in Sacramento shines the 
spotlight on all of S's uh, special attractions. Once again, Ed Loiseau, uh, one of the coordinators, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jim, and uh, I'll see you at the convention. It's worth noting that the S-scale hobby recently hit a bump in the road when the Santa Can factory in China terminated production for two of the scale's major suppliers, along with manufacturers in other scales as well. But S-scalers are a resilient bunch and have always risen to the challenge. Until production ramps back up somewhere else, they'll do what they've always done best, build things. You bet, Trevor. I know that's one of the challenges I enjoy about being an S-scale. By the way, for some great video of Ed's layout, check out our link to program number 705 of Tracks Ahead. You'll be able to see what Ed has accomplished over the years, much of it in leaner times than now. Ed's layout is truly a work of art. Speaking of art, our next guest makes an art of making grime shine. Here is Trevor. Some modelers describe our hobby as being an art form. But when is it art, really? How about when a plastic HO or O-scale freight car commands $500 or more, not because the car itself is rare or collectible, but because of how it has been finished and weathered? Is that unreasonable? Well, consider this. A painting can command tens of thousands of dollars, yet the materials might set you back less than 100 After all, it's just some tubes of paint, some brushes, some thinner, a piece of canvas, and so on. The real value is in the talent of the artist. Now, if that artist chooses to express his vision on an HO freight car instead of on a canvas, the same principle should apply, shouldn't it? To help answer that question, Jeremy St. Peter joins me today. Jeremy is a member of The Weathering Shop, an artist collective for freight car finishers. He admits that he's been in the hobby less than a decade and found his interest quickly shifted from planning for that dream layout to creating realistically weathered rolling stock. And it's fantastic stuff. We'll have a link on our website so you can judge for yourself. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Now, you started in this hobby with the same ambition as the rest of us, to have a layout. But your focus shifted to weathering, and now you admit you don't really care if you build that empire. How did you get involved in weathering as an art form? I remember probably in 2004, I was searching on eBay for Milwaukee Road freight cars. And one of the items that popped up was a weathered, Milwaukee Road covered hopper, and I'm not really sure who did the model, but I remember thinking to myself, like, oh my God, that's just awesome. I wonder how he did that. So I started searching on the internet for weathered freight cars, and one of the sites that popped up was Model Trains Weathered. It's a forum that's dedicated to weathering. And so I joined up, and I basically spent about six months reading everything I could read on weathering, and I was basically hooked. That's what I wanted to do, was just weathering. Now, lots of people weather their rolling stock. Every serious hobbyist does. I do, too, but I certainly wouldn't consider the jobs that I do an art form. When does weathering actually transcend that from being a a thing we add to the cars to actually becoming art? I personally think it becomes art when you can look at a model and you have a hard time telling it from an actual locomotive or freight car. I think everyone has their own standards as to what constitutes art, so I guess it has a lot to do with personal taste. But for me, it comes down to realism. Uh, how does the artist choose to do what he's doing, and how well is that conception carried through on the model? Does it become more than some of his parts, or can you sit there and say, you know, that's just awesome, I can't change a thing about it. To me, that's what art is. Now, how did the weathering shop come about? My friend Gary Christensen and I, another member of the shop, came up with the premise in October of 2009. We were both members of MPW, and we realized that the problem with a forum is that while your work is there, it seems to get lost in the shuffle. After a month or two, someone really had to search to see what you did. 
So we decided that a gallery site would be great as a permanent place to post our models. Okay, and you've had a couple of other people join you since then. You're up to what now, about five or six? No, we've got nine members now. Nine members, okay. Now, the the Weathering Shop offers finished models for sale. Do you still do models for your own collection, or are you busy doing commissions for people? I'll keep models that I'm especially fond of. Uh, I kept the GT Evans car, and I gave it to my father as a Christmas present last year, mainly because it took me two years to finish, and it was a reminder of what was going on in my life during those years. I personally don't do commission work, meaning I don't take requests for money. If someone approaches me with a worthwhile cause, like the Exact Hill Project, I'll listen to them. But other than that, I prefer to do what I want as far as weathering. It's much more motivating to do what I want, how I want. Now, the Exact Real Project, that was the uh, series of cars that were done to raise money for charity. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. What sort of customers buy these? Is there a certain type of hobbyist that becomes a, a regular patron for you? As far as I know, almost everyone who buys these is a hobbyist. I think that most people are into trains, and I believe that the weathering is just an extension of them wanting a more realistic look to their layout. The one guy that I've sold cars to, he runs everything that I have sold him on his layout. But there are folks that I know of that collect certain artists' models and simply just put them in a display case. They're just a collector. How do you decide on a subject? Is there, there's so many choices out there. Does it relate to whether or not there's a good starting model available, or is it uh, something that you see locally at the freight yard, or, or what compels you to do one car over another? Sometimes it is that. If I see a model that just comes out on the market, and I'm like, holy cow, i got to do that, I'll go and I'll look for a prototype photo. I usually work from photos with what I do, and I try to get as close as I can, but sometimes I can say inspired by this photo instead of trying to copy it exactly. I look at thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, and more often than not, that's how I come up with the idea, okay, here's an awesome car. I need to go and find a model that matches this car, and that's how most of it comes about. Now, you mentioned that the one car that you gave to your father took about two years to do. Is that typical for finishing a freight car like this, or are you working on several projects at once, or how long does it take to do a car to this standard? For myself, it's anywhere from 20 to 60 hours. The GT took me 60 hours, and I think that probably has more to do with the fact that it was, I think, the fourth car that I've ever done. So it's a learning experience for me. Like every car I've ever done, I'm learning something as I'm doing it, and I'm doing something different than the car before. I'm using the same techniques. Sometimes I'm coming up with new techniques, and it's basically an ongoing process for me. I'm not just doing the same thing car after car after car. But, yeah, it takes a lot of time, and it's just one of those things where as you go, it's a learning experience. So 20 to 60 hours, that's a far cry from the you know, the 30 minutes or maybe 45 minutes that most people spend weathering a freight car. You know, they get the airbrush out and give it a quick shot of uh, brown and sooty yeah. black and off they go. Yeah, I mean, that's a personal thing. Gary, one of the other guys on the shop, he can do a car in a week. He can do a car in probably a day if he wanted to. He, it's just, you know, my personal way of working is... I can't sit at the bench for hours, hours, hours. The great thing about a lot of the stuff that I do to a car is that it can, if I was to sit there, it can be done. You can finish a car in a couple hours, a day, a night, and that's just, that's a great thing there. You must take a lot of time then as you're doing it to sort of reflect and and look at the prototype photo that you're working from. And do you ever find that you've gone in a wrong direction and you have to remove it and start over? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The GT car, 
that's one I remember fondly is that the roof, I repainted the roof three times because it was just not coming out right. And I guess that's probably one reason why I do take so long is because I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to this kind of stuff. The original concept and then how do you get to the original concept? And then what corrections do you make along the way? That, I think that that goes into like how this becomes art. And it's just one of those things, I guess, where you're constantly trying to push yourself and you're constantly trying to better yourself. And yeah, messing up is a big, big part of it. And learning how to fix those mess ups are part of it, too. So a good piece of advice for people who want to weather their cars, maybe not to the extent that you do, but even if they just want to improve their weathering game is to not be afraid to start over. Exactly. Don't be afraid to mess up. Don't be afraid to start over. I remember when I first started doing this stuff, I'd say to all my buddies, oh my gosh, this is a $25 freight car. I'm afraid to mess it up. Well, I see it now as I'm improving it. It's a totally different perspective. When you get to the point where you're comfortable with what you're doing, you're not worried about messing up. You just keep going and you keep pushing. Now, the website, the the Weathering Shop website, lists several weathering artists on it. Do you accept new members to this guild? and, And how would one audition for that? To be honest with you, nobody's ever actually asked be a member of the site. <laughs> the guys on the site are there because Gary and myself, and as the roster has grown, the rest of the members have thought highly of a certain artist's work, and we've approached them individually with an offer to be on the site. I guess if someone wants to be a member, all they have to do is submit some work for us to look over, and if we're impressed, we'll add them. That being said, we have nine members, and we kind of have a soft, unwritten limit of ten simply because of the amount of work it is for me to put people on and put updates on every single week. But trust me, if someone shows up out of nowhere and they just blow us away, I'll make sure that they're on the site regardless of how many members we have. All right, so if there's somebody out there listening who has some talent in the freight car weathering department, they should just start getting a gallery going online and start posting and uh, maybe send you an email and say, look what I'm doing. Yeah, that would be great. That would be awesome. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right then. Well, listen, Jeremy, it's been great having you here. Thanks for joining us today on the Model Railway Show. Oh, thank you very much. I totally appreciate it. I've been speaking with Jeremy St. Peter, a member of the Weathering Shop. Thanks, guys. Jeremy has highlighted some truly amazing work, and to think there was a time when it was considered a sacrilege to dirty up a freight car. Personally, I'm of the opinion you shouldn't be afraid to tackle weathering. It's really like layout scenery. Even if your work doesn't match the masters, it's still going to look better than doing nothing. Just remember, dust doesn't count as weathering. Well, before we drop our fires, we'd like to remind you to take full advantage of the ModelRailwayShow.com. Visit our website for show news, past episodes, interesting links related to the conversations you've just heard, and our Flickr photo gallery. And don't forget, you can find us on Facebook. As always, our thanks go out to Chris Abbott, our technical director, as well as to our web designer, Otto Vondrack, and to Dave Woodhead for the original music. His catchy little earworm has a title, by the way. It's called Clackety. Next time around, narrow-gauge model railroading and scratch building go together like peanut butter and jelly, and we're going to highlight some new books on both. Just remember, peanut butter may be sticky, but it's no substitute for ACC. That's right. We'll have Chris Lane of Carson's Publications here to tell us about the 2011 ON30 Annual. As well, master scratch builder Bob Walker, whose column appears in each issue of Railroad Model Craftsman magazine, has scratch built himself a book, one you'll want next to your workbench. For Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. We'll catch you next time here on the Model Railway Show. 